0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world
1: breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lansma. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Michael Mathay and colleagues titled, A New Global Definition of Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. I'm joined today by the co-lead author of the study, Dr. Michael Mathay, a professor of medicine and anesthesia at the University of California at San Francisco, a senior associate at the Cardiovascular Research Institute, and associate director of the intensive care unit at UCSF. Welcome and thank you for joining me. I'm very pleased to be here working with you on this podcast, Mike. So am I. So let's let's start with the big question. Why do we need to update the Berlin criteria?
0: Well, the Berlin definition in 2010, now 13 years ago, was excellent in so many respects, but it primarily included ARDS patients who were intubated and ventilated. And it's been clear to clinicians and investigators that many patients have ARDS, even if they are not intubated and ventilated. And that became clear through the pandemic with wider use of high flow nasal oxygen. So that was one major motivation. A second motivation was that although arterial blood gases are widely available, it's been clear that using oxygen saturation could be and actually has been an excellent substitute for establishing hypoxemia criteria. But this particular criteria of oxygen saturation was not part of the Berlin criteria. So that was another issue to consider. And a third major one was that the Berlin criteria did not adequately accommodate resource-limited areas of the world where advanced ICU technology
1: was not frequently available. I'd like to go a little bit more on that point about the Berlin criteria not being applicable to resource limitations. This underscores the importance of representation. So how did you select the panel of experts? What was the process, and how did you ensure that you achieved a good mix of expert perspectives?
0: Well, that was our initial goal, to try to achieve diversity in multiple domains, both geographically and in terms of ARDS experts. The basic approach was what we commonly call a cascading, invitational, informal approach, meaning that we would try to identify experts in the field, but with a wide geographic representation, for example. So we ended up with representatives from six continents. We ended up with a good balance of men and women, Ds experts. And we also wanted to be sure to include other specialties, such as respiratory care and community physicians, and also respiratory therapist and a resident in internal medicine, so that we represented that group, and in addition, a patient care advocate. So in the end, we had 32 members of our consensus conference. I think we had excellent broad representation and diversity, though no group is perfect in sampling all areas.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think one of the challenges with a lot of these approaches is trying to avoid groupthink. And I think you and your group have done an excellent job trying to get a broad range of health professionals. What were the goals that you were trying to achieve with the uh, new ARDS definition? Like what criteria were you looking for to ensure that this would actually be an improvement? Well,
0: the first criteria was to broaden definition that would be useful to clinicians caring for patients with acute respiratory failure from ARDS that would really have a common sense approach and would be widely applicable, not just in university settings, but in community hospitals and uh, throughout the world. And the second goal was to make sure we were including criteria for the diagnosis of ARDS that were sufficiently broad so that we did not limit the diagnosis to just intubated ventilated patients with the idea that we could identify patients with the ARDS earlier in their clinical course. And then again, as we briefly discussed, trying to make an expanded definition apply globally, particularly with an emphasis on resource limited areas.
1: I like the goal of trying to achieve clinical utility. I'm interested in how your group Reviewed the data to shape that definition. My understanding is that there wasn't a formal comprehensive literature review. So, what was the reasoning behind that decision?
0: Yes, that was an important issue. We discussed upfront quite a bit what would be the proper way to actually include the relevant literature without doing an exhausting, if you will, meta analysis of all studies in the field. And so, to achieve this, we ended up creating three different study groups, one focused on Timing and extrapulmonary manifestations of ARDS, one on imaging criteria, and one on oxygenation. And then each of those subgroups worked very hard to identify articles that were published, not just in the recent past, that were directly relevant to these issues. And we used some review of the National Library of Articles, I think. As illustrated well in the supplement to the article, we had a very broad range of articles, though it's always possible we missed something that could be important. But that was our reasoning. It also was a concern that if we did sort of standard broad literature search, it would take so long and be so complicated that we would end up not being able to come forth with practical recommendations in a reasonable time period.
1: I like that balance of recognizing... Perfect is sometimes the enemy of good. That's it. You said it better than I did. When it comes to the data, I want to underscore your your reference to the supplement. For any of the listeners out there, that supplement is a treasure trove of outstanding information. I was hoping you could walk us through the consensus process. I noticed that this committee didn't use the same sort of comprehensive processes that we usually see in a lot of other clinical practice guidelines. Yes, we talked
0: about that a lot. In fact, in the very beginning, we considered whether we would use a Delphi approach to try and achieve consensus on our major recommendations. And we were open to that throughout. In fact, we had a Delphi expert as one of the members of our consensus conference, Dr. Richard Mularski. But as the process evolved, we found ourselves coming together around the recommendations without really the need to do a formal Delphi. We had lots of energetic, thoughtful discussion, agreements, disagreements, and actually we had six major meetings together virtually over a period of a year and a half. And then we worked to solicit input from members of 21 different critical care societies. So at the end of the day, it seemed like we didn't need a Delphi process, for example, like so many guidelines have done. I think this was reasonable, but uh, that's how our
1: process evolved. Well, the outcome certainly seems reasonable in that your final definition achieved 100% approval. You mentioned some of the more interesting discussions. I was hoping you might elaborate on that. What are some of the areas that led to the most discussion or disagreements or controversy before achieving consensus?
0: Yes, that's really worth discussing. I think we were very comfortable with the timing issue, feeling like the original Berlin definition still applied in terms of approximately one week of symptoms and presenting with respiratory failure. When we talked about the oxygenation criteria, and we all agreed we needed to include high flow nasal oxygen that was really an advance and already seemed to be common clinical practice throughout the COVID pandemic and even since then. But it wasn't exactly clear what the cutoff should be. Should it be 20 liters, 30 liters, or 40 liters of high flow? And for a variety of reasons, we settled on 30 liters, which would be enough, for example, to generate low level of PEEP in most patients, two to five centimeters of water, and not so low that it would just be supplemental oxygen. So that was an area that took some time to carefully weigh what would be reasonable. And then the other area which we talked about a lot is the oxygen saturation substitution. So that a patient could be identified as having ARDS if their oxygen saturation divided by their estimated fraction-inspired oxygen reached the same oxygenation thresholds roughly that They would with an arterial blood gas oxygen concentration. There was actually quite a bit of precedent for using this, including a phase three clinical trial that we published in the New England Journal, where this had worked out in 13% of the patients. But we were also concerned about the limitations, which are described in the proposal. Specifically, the oxygen saturation has to be 97% or less, or you can't really calculate it the patient may be in shock, and so the perfusion of the extremities where the oxygen saturation monitor is placed or on the earlobe or elsewhere may not be recording a proper signal. And of course, this other big issue of patients who have various shades of darker skin where the saturation may not be so accurate. At the end of the day, we still thought this was a good advance, but the proposal explains the areas of uncertainty. And I'd say the third area that we considered a lot in response to your question is chest imaging. We considered whether unilateral infiltrates, two quadrants would be sufficient versus our current bilateral opacities. And again, at the end of the day, as explained in the supplement and the main paper, we concluded that at this time, it was preferable to stay with bilateral opacities whether they were detected by a chest X-ray, CT scan, or, as we may discuss further, ultrasound. So I'd say those were three of the major
1: areas of uh, discussion of pros and cons. Why don't we just talk about that definition? I, I know the conceptual model for ARDS, or this new global definition, is mostly similar to the Berlin definition, but there are some small changes, and we've kind of hinted at them. Now, what exactly is new in the, uh, this new conceptual model?
0: Well, the conceptual model, which again, as you said, we thought Berlin covered most of it well, but since Berlin, there's been increasing evidence that if pathology is available on the lungs, often as a postmortem, occasionally as an open lung biopsy, the presence of hyaline membranes is really not necessary for the diagnosis of ARDS at the pathologic level. Edema fluid and acute infiltration with neutrophils is really a, matches very well with many cases of ARDS, just the bad pneumonia. It is true the diffuse alveolar damage is seemingly present in more severe cases. Another area that maybe wasn't emphasized as much is the coexistence of atelectasis, And that's highlighted by the Proceva trial three years after Berlin, the prone positioning trial, which showed how patients had better oxygenation and importantly. If they had severe hypoxemia, their survival was better. And so that, we think, illustrates how shifting the inflation of the lung differentially, supine versus prone, probably has some benefit in expanding alveoli and maybe even helping them to recover. That's the speculation. So the conceptual model emphasizes this issue of atelectasis at a kind of a Micro level. And finally, we tried to emphasize how, of course, the interventions we all use, levels of PEEP, body position, neuromuscular blockade, all can influence the severity of hypoxemia. So I think those were some of the minor
1: advances in the conceptual model. I'd like to talk a little bit about the timing of ARDS. And I think COVID may have made this a little bit more. Uh, noticeable when you'd have a lot of patients who might present after a week or two of subacute or sometimes even indolent symptoms. What changes do you think were proposed regarding timing and risk factors for ARDS?
0: Well, that was a key issue. It took a lot of our time to review that, including a subcommittee that worked on it. And just like you said, Mike, we, of course, recognize that there were patients with COVID-19 or in the past, influenza viral pneumonia, who had more than a week of respiratory symptoms. But we thought that for the most part, we were talking about patients who developed respiratory insufficiency within one week. And then the other qualifying point was that if we expanded the definition to high-flow nasal oxygen, that that would allow earlier diagnosis. So the time frame of one week for acute onset of respiratory failure might still be facilitated and reasonable. But we didn't wanna be dogmatic about this and it is discussed in the supplement also. So I wouldn't say, for example, that if the patient strictly presented within nine days that they couldn't be diagnosed with ARDS. So that seven days, probably, although we retained it, is worthy of further study prospectively.
1: You're absolutely right. The other aspect that I was most interested in was perhaps uh, your committee's proposal for alternatives for chest imaging. Chest x-ray, as we know, has fairly poor interrelated reliability and arguably is not as sensitive as CT or ultrasound. And so I'm wondering how does the definition or the new model incorporate these imaging modalities of CT and ultrasound into the definition?
0: Yes, well, just like you said, we've all struggled for almost 25 years with recognizing the chest radiograph, although still a standard for recognizing bilateral consolidation, can and will be interpreted a little differently by different clinicians and experts. Uh, Gordon Rubinfeld and I, I think, published the first paper highlighting this issue in 1999 in chest when we tested experts in the ARDS Network. And uh, the kappa correlation was 43%. (laughs) And then we trained everybody to try to agree on what was a positive chest radiograph and it improved to about 70%. But we all know that it still is a little variable. So um, just to expand on this a little bit, Lorraine Ware and I and others developed this more detailed score called the RAL score where you can quantify... The extent of opacities, and severity of pulmonary edema from a score of 1 to 48. And that's been validated in many studies, but it would be too much to try and ask clinicians to do this at the time they're diagnosing patients. So we um, retain the chest radiograph recommendations, trying to exclude effusions and atelectases. And we emphasize, too, that a CT scan can definitely be useful in settings that have that available, and will often resolve whether the patient's apparent opacity is pleural effusion, consolidation, or just atelectasis. Now, outside of those diagnostic modalities, ultrasound then emerges, as you explained. And ultrasound is widely used in some advanced medical centers. For example, in France, it's almost part of daily rounds to evaluate the chest with ultrasound. And so there's quite a bit of good literature that says that bilateral B lines between two different ribs really will identify areas of pulmonary edema. And so that, we thought, is reasonable to recommend, especially in resource-limited areas where there's not a chest X-ray available. But having said all that, we feel like this is an area that will really potentially be a fruitful clinical research focus all over the world, including resource-limited areas and resource-intensive areas? Will it be helpful in the modern ICU so that patients could have their ultrasound done three times a day when we wouldn't want to get a chest x-ray three times a day? So I think it's right to recommend ultrasound as an alternative, but we emphasize that more work needs to be done here.
1: It's certainly an evolving area. I completely agree. And I think there will be more application of it, and we're going to see more information. I wanted to get back to one of the comments you had made about unilateral versus bilateral capacities. And I think this brings up the lung-safe study, where we see that there was increased mortality with multiple quadrants, even if those were on the same side. So two out of four quadrants was still increased mortality. And so I'm wondering... Is the issue here, should we be looking at ARDS from the perspective of increased mortality, or is there something pathobiologic about bilateral versus unilateral?
0: Well, I must admit that we have a very open mind about this. So one of the members of our committee, John Laffey, from Ireland was a major author of the SAFE studies. And he was a co-author on the European Respiratory Journal article that referred to just what you said, that 2 quadrant consolidation on one side was the same mortality. However, in going into this in some depth, we decided that it was too early to take the approach that ARDS could be defined with just a unilateral abnormalities. We worried, for example, that if, if the capacities were on the left side, how would we be sure to sort out atelectasis. We all know with the left heart, we often have trouble telling whether the left lower quadrant is atelectasis or consolidation or effusion. And then back to your original point, we still thought conceptually that ARDS indicates involvement of both lungs, not just one lung. So therefore, we decided to continue with bilateral opacities. And one limitation of that SAFE study is They did not have as much data as we would like. For example, they didn't have oxygenation data. So yes, the mortality was similar in those two groups. That's provocative and should be the basis for more research. And in fact, the pediatricians, in their revised definition of pediatric ARDS, they have adopted a unilateral consolidation. So we're not resistant to the idea, but I think before recommending it, we thought, further prospective studies could be helpful. I
1: was hoping you could elaborate a little bit more about the specifics on oxygen thresholds and delivery modes. Any changes there? Right. So the oxygen
0: thresholds, we uh, reviewed that in considerable detail, both the subcommittee and the whole group. We decided the oxygen thresholds as specified in Berlin have worked out quite well. The mild category of 200 to 300, the moderate of 100 to 200, and severe less than 100. I think most people know those do have a correlation with uh, increasing mortality as the PF ratio declines. And we did not think we should leave that, that there wasn't enough evidence that we should change that. And the SF ratio, the oxygen saturation ratio, is adjusted to retain those three categories. And I th- so I think that's reasonable. We however recognize that for like a clinical trial, you might pick patients for a trial based on, let's say a PF of less than 150, like they did in the Proceva prone trial, because reevaluation of the earlier trial suggested it was that cutoff that made a difference for a potential benefit of prone on mortality. So while we retain those thresholds, I think we've explained that investigators should be open to the possibility of selecting different thresholds, like was done in the EOLIA ECMO trial. They selected more severe hypoxemia thresholds to qualify for ECMO.
1: I like that distinction between trying to pick a threshold to enrich a study versus picking a threshold to categorize a disease. I think that's a very wise distinction. I wanted to just go back very briefly about what you would mentioned with the SF ratio. And I wanted to ask about were there any discussions or controversies when you were trying to decide with the group about the issues of SpO2 not being linearly related to the PaO2, or that the SF ratios weren't prospectively tested, or I think you had also mentioned about the potential for racial bias in the SpO2.
0: Yes, we talked about that quite a bit. We ended up choosing the rice approach for SF ratio. We thought it was simpler, as explained in more detail in the text. And I think that will work out well for most clinical situations. As I mentioned, it worked well in our prospective neuromuscular blockade trial, the ROSE trial, and published in the New England Journal in 2018. But this issue of the problems with dark-skinned individuals is definitely unresolved. And I've included one link to efforts by the FDA in the United States to try to hold manufacturers to a higher standard so that they manufacture oximeters that have more reliability. And currently I think there's a lot of prospective studies going on in Europe, the United States and globally to identify the issues. There are already issues that have been identified, but I think we're going to see better oximeters over the next very few years that might cope with this uh, issue more completely, but we did talk about it a lot. I would say it's an area that needs more work. But again, like you said earlier, if we if we didn't adopt the oxygen saturation method, we're left with what do we require? We're saying everybody has to definitely have an arterial blood gas, and that would then limit uh, global relevance we did indicate if there was uncertainty about the oxygen saturation that affected diagnosis or clinical treatment, if possible, and if needed, an arterial blood gas could and should be obtained.
1: I think that point is relevant even in resource-rich countries too. I mean, I can think of several times where we don't often get a PAO2 from a blood gas until fairly late in a, a clinical course. And that also brings me to my next question, which is about the definition of ARDS in that mild ARDS is rarely diagnosed. And I think part of this is probably because people don't start thinking about it until the oxygen defect becomes severe enough for intubation or high flow nasal cannula. And I'm wondering what the value is in diagnosing mild ARDS in that patient who's got bilateral pneumonia, now needs more oxygen, but isn't yet needing substantial support with high flow or intubation. I mean, we're not going to administer low tidal volume ventilation in that, in that patient. So why is it important to diagnose mild ARDS when many of the landmark studies that inform us on ARDS inadvertently omitted those patients with mild ARDS? And I mean, also, they probably omitted some with severe. Right. So well said. So why, just like you said,
0: is identifying mild ARDS a potential advantage? Well, you know, I had the opportunity to work with Tom Petty in my residency, Dr. Petty at uh, Colorado, and he used to say, Michael, making the diagnosis of ARDS is only a first step. You have to then quickly search for cause of the lung injury, which most often will be infection. So if you diagnose mild ARDS early, you will start the ball rolling to look for the pathogen, causing the ARDS, or the pathogens, plural, which now with growing recognition of viral and other non-bacterial infections is very important, some of which we can treat. And I think it'll heighten the clinician's awareness, oh, we have a patient with mild ARDS, what is the possible infectious cause? Or also, does the patient have uh, acute pancreatitis, which is stimulating this? So I think the etiology of the ARDS will be highlighted. Secondly, briefly, we'll be able to talk to the patients more in this early phase than we could if we wait till they're intubated. So we can learn so much more perhaps about their exposures, their pre-hospital condition, how many of these patients you know, had some neurologic problems, mild dementia, other comorbidities. I think that will be helpful. And then finally, it gives a chance to test newer therapies at a very earlier phase or older therapies. So maybe inhaled steroids and inhaled beta agonists could be beneficial at an early phase. There's a phase two trial being run at Stanford in just the group you described with pneumonia and bilateral infiltrates not yet intubated. We could find that some of the treatments didn't work in the ventilated
1: patient might end up working in early milder ARDS. That's an excellent point. And I think you transition this really well into my next question, which deals with some of those clinical investigations. And I think I want to look at this more from a historical perspective. Whenever we have a change in definitions, there's always a question about how much of that study population is conserved between those definitions. We look at the sort of patients this new definition encompasses and the sorts of patients that were done in the prior landmark ARDS studies like ARMA or FACT. I'm wondering how similar you think these groups are. Do you think this new definition is just able to recognize more patients in other countries, or do you think that this new definition allows for key differences between the groups that were identified with the prior definition and and the patients that will be identified in future studies? Well,
0: I think the tent will get bigger. I think we will definitely find more patients with mild ARDS and earlier lung injury, and uh, of course, Probably the lung protective ventilatory strategies won't be so applicable, but, you know, conservative fluid strategy in the absence of shock could be applied earlier in these patients, even though we don't have a controlled trial in the absence of shock to help manage their hypoxemia and lung injury. Or another thought would be this recent study from France in the New England Journal the Kate Cod study in the spring of 2023, they found in patients with community-acquired pneumonia, we don't know for sure, but it seems like they had bilateral pneumonia for the most part, if they gave them steroids, if they were not in shock, critical distinction perhaps, that the outcomes were much better in terms of mortality and progressing to needing invasive mechanical ventilation. So, I think the tent will get bigger. There will be some non specificity. There'll be some misclassifications, probably, just like an acute kidney injury where we have trouble early on to tell whether the patient has a pre renal failure or absolute acute renal failure. But that's probably not going to be harmful to the patient. Uh, we'll see how much we can learn and help
1: the patient earlier on. I like how you raise a couple of proposed studies that I think are just positioned to be potential landmark studies in the next decade. This is really exciting. So let's just kind of talk about perspective here. The American European Consensus conference definition lasted about 20 years, and now the Berlin definition has lasted about 10 years. What are some of the additional areas that you think might need to be explored over the next decade before we revise this new global definition? Well, I
0: think exploring how it works and applies in the global setting, and resource-limited areas will be really critical. One of the members of our group, Dr. Riviello from Boston, she does a lot of work in Rwanda and sub-Saharan Africa, has a major research project funded to test different oxygen delivery systems. There'll be studies like hers and many others that I think will tell us how this broadened definition helps epidemiologically with understanding ARDS, and might stimulate new trials and other studies. So that will be very important. And then as we see how ultrasound progresses or not in both, as you said, resource limited areas, but also areas like our hospitals where we have resources, how much will the ultrasound help us in uh, regular hospitals beyond the chest radiograph? And then the oxygen saturation criteria. That's, of course, important for future study. So I think and hope that this new global definition can be updated in five to 10 years. No definitions are immutable, and so they should stimulate further revisions. So I look forward to that. This is not cast in stone. We created a website to try to encourage input from clinicians all over the world So we'll see, but I think if it has value over five to 10 years, then we should be ready for an update in that time period, and that could be very healthy.
1: Well, the future should be pretty exciting for research in ARDS. I think this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Mathay, not only for a great discussion of his manuscript, but also a discussion about ARDS as well. This has been quite illuminating. Thank you so much. Thank you. Your committee's just done a phenomenal job revising that Berlin definition to be more globally relevant, and I think this is something every intensivist should know. I'm expecting we're going to see similar revisions over the coming decades as we refine our thought processes to improve generalizability. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.